Is Josie going to survive? Join me on this continuing investigation on what it is that makes us human. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the second half of Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves and discuss the first half on the second Friday of the month and the second half on the last Friday of the month. I'll be sharing your thoughts and mine, asking loads of questions, discussing ideas, making predictions, and when we finish the book, we'll decide what type of person we recommend it to, if at all. Of course, I'd love you to read alongside me, but you don't have to read anything. You can audible or just listen to the podcast, since I'll be summarising the book, but be aware there will be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I love reading your comments. Welcome to Bookshook. So this podcast is all about the second half of Clara and the Sun from the little square dot on page 156 or 50% if you're kindling to the end. So the questions that we had at the end of the first part, I'm just going to go through them again quickly. So will Clara find a cure for Josie and will Josie get better? And will Rich get to the college Atlas Brookings? Will the mother continue to emulate Josie? And will we ever find out what that Cootings machine is that we learned about in the first half? And will we learn why uplifted children sometimes get sick? And will Clara's naive belief that the sun can be harnessed lead to anyone's destruction? And will Clara's inability to imagine violence be any kind of handicap? So we ended the first part with Clara about to go on a brave journey to McBain's farm. So she begins her brave journey and she imagines some horrible scenarios. Quote, While crossing one particularly unkind box, I heard around me the cries of an animal in pain and a picture came into my mind of Rosa sitting on the rough ground somewhere outdoors, little pieces of metal scattered around her as she reached out both hands to grasp one of her legs stretched out stiffly before her. The image was in my mind for only a second, but the animal carried on making its noise and I felt the ground collapsing beneath me. I remembered the terrible bull on the walk up to Morgan's Falls and how, in all probability, it had emerged from beneath the ground. And for a brief moment, I even thought the sun wasn't kind at all. And this was the true reason for Josie's worsening condition. Even in this confusion, I was convinced that if I could only pull myself through into a kinder box, I'd become safe. And Rick sees her from a distance struggling in a ditch. And he speaks to her later, saying, quote, You looked like one of those flies that buzz around blindly on the window pane. That's such a brilliant metaphor. Blindly programmed to be attracted to the light, just like Clara. Clara says to Rick, Look, I think I may have run out of time. Quote, she says, I should have left the house earlier, but I was waiting till Josie fell asleep and to allow Melania housekeeper to believe I was going on another errand to Rick's house. I thought there'd be sufficient time, but the fields were more complex than I'd imagined. Rick was still looking towards Mr McBain's barn. He says, you keep saying you won't get there in time, but when exactly did you want to be there? And Clara says, just as the sun is arriving at Mr McBain's barn, but before he disappears for his rest... Rick says, look, I don't understand any of this and I appreciate you can't let me in on it for whatever reason, but if you want, I'll take you there. You say it's important, important for Josie, so I'd like to help. This is over my head, but then I'm used to that. If we're going, we have to hurry. So Rick offers to carry Clara on his back. Clara slowly realises that, quote, the sun was about to descend, not into the place I was making such an effort to reach, but somewhere further away still. 
Rick lowered me carefully and we both gazed at the scene before us. Although I now had to accept the barn couldn't be the sun's actual resting place, I allowed myself an encouraging possibility that regardless of where the sun ultimately settled, Mr. McBain's barn was a place he made a point of calling at the last thing each evening, just as Josie always visited her aunt's suite before retiring to bed. Further away still, and I'm thinking, oh no, I hope this isn't going to lead to some kind of wild goose chase like Newto in The Moon and the Bonfire, constantly searching for, in this instance, the sun, not the moon. Talking of the sun, I read the rhyme of the ancient mariner yesterday, listening to those words. It really reminds me of so much of the sun's description in this book. As the mariner looks out the sea, he describes, quote, the sun came up upon the left, out of the sea came he, and he shone bright and on the right went down into the sea. Again, we've got that use of the masculine pronoun to describe the sun. Continuing the narrative, Rick offers to take Clara home, aware that it's getting dark and he had to rescue her earlier. But Clara says she has some business to do there alone. Quote, what I was about to do carried risk and would require all my concentration. I'm thinking, uh-oh, what calamity is about to befall Clara? I can't watch. I'm literally hiding behind my metaphorical sofa. And Clara herself surely knows something bad is going to happen. She steps into the barn and, quote, the interior was filled with orange light. There were particles of hay drifting in the air like evening insects, and his patterns were falling all across the barn's wooden floor. When I glanced behind me, my own shadow looked like a tall, thin tree ready to break in the wind. That cutting down the tree, that simile does not sound promising. She's so close-minded and she assumes that the red shells are the same ones from her store. Quote, I now saw, fixed to this wall and running all along it, the red shells from our store, complete with the ceramic coffee cups displayed upside down and in a line. She only understands her own empirical knowledge of the world. Clara seats herself in the barn and basically prays, they're my words, but she's praying to the sun that she believes may be passing through the barn. Quote, please make Josie better, just as you did beggar man. Josie's still a child and she's done nothing unkind. Clara is then reminded of how she was made to feel selfish by boy AF Rex at the beginning of the novel. Rex says, quote, You took all the nourishment for yourself, Clara. Look, it's almost gone dark. And she thinks her prayer may not be answered because of other humans. Quote, it was clear the son was unwilling to make any promise about Josie because for all his kindness, he wasn't yet able to see Josie separately from the other humans, some of whom had angered him very much on account of their pollution and inconsideration. And I suddenly felt foolish to have come to this place to make such a request. Is this a crucial turning point for Clara, the beginning of a hatred for other humans? I really hope not. She sees a vision of Rosa in pain again. And this whole barn section is interspersed with a detailed description of how Clara's vision is represented to her, a series of boxes. For example, when she sits, we have this, quote, I fully expected to see a revised picture of my surroundings due to the altered angle, but was surprised to find that everything had instead become partitioned, and not just into the usual boxes, but into segments of a regular shape. Inside some segments, I could see certain parts of Mr. McBain's farming tools, a spade handle, the lower half of a metal ladder. In another segment, was what I knew to be the mouths of two plastic buckets placed side by side, but owing perhaps to the difficult lighting conditions, they were presented simply as two intersecting ovals. The visual system seems to focus on what is deemed, quote, important by her software. 
I'm still learning alongside Clara what precisely is going on in terms of her vision system. I'm not that clear, but it's obviously quite complex. Clara resolves to destroy the Cootings machine for the sun. Quote, I know how much the sun dislikes pollution, how much it saddens and angers you. Well, I've seen and identified the machine that creates it. Supposing I were able somehow to find this machine and destroy it, to put an end to its pollution, would you then consider, in return, giving your special help to Josie? The sky was turning into night with stars visible and I could tell that the sun was smiling towards me kindly as he went down for his rest. So will Clara, doing the favour of reading textbooks with Rick for Miss Helen, teach him the true empirical nature of the sun, the fact that it's the earth that's going around the sun and the sun doesn't actually live below the earth or in a barn or, or beyond the hills? Kind Rick had actually waited for her, partly because, quote, suppose you got stuck out here all night and got damaged, I'd be in deep trouble. Clara believes that an agreement with the son has been made. Quote, first I must perform a task. I'm not able to discuss this matter with Rick. Tonight, I believe an understanding was achieved. A contract, if you like, but it might be jeopardised if I speak about it freely. And we learn what Miss Helen's secret weapon is. And Rick says, quote, some creep she knows who helped us run that place. And he's talking about Atlas Brookings College. An old flame of hers. I don't want any part of it. Continuing the narrative, Rick and Josie make up and the mother wants Clara to join Josie having her portrait in town with Mr Capaldi. Capaldi is fascinated by AFs and may have some questions to ask Clara. And this is very interesting how the mother's obsession with capturing aspects of Josie again. And here we have this portrait asking Clara to emulate her. And I'm wondering where this secret Sal AF is that we heard about in the first part. Rick agrees to meet this, quote, secret weapon. Melania is not invited along to go on this trip, but she takes Clara aside to say that Capaldi is a creep, that she must watch him. And Clara questions why the mother would put her daughter in danger. And Melania just says, quote, when Sal died, it messed up ma'am bad. Clara mentions that she has some business in town to save Josie. And Melania says... Quote, plan, listen, AF, you make things worse, I come dismantle you. She doesn't want anything going badly with Josie. The plot seems a little bit contrived here. Suddenly there's this brand new threat from this Capaldi guy who I'm going to call Creep, because that's what Melania says. And Clara will try to break the Cootings machine and abandon Josie to Capaldi. That's what I'm thinking may happen. And this whole portrait thing is slightly strange. Why doesn't the mother take lots of photos of Josie if she's so keen on capturing her image. Mm, I think there's some questions there. And how does Clara know the Cootings machine is in town? It just disappeared one day. Again, another question I'm not sure has an answer. Continuing the narrative, Clara witnesses Josie having a nightmare. And at this point, I'm beginning to think that we may never truly know what this Cootings machine is and what Uplifted really is and why Josie became ill through this uplifting process. I think there's going to be a lot of questions which are unanswered. Continuing on, we get to part four of the book. And all five of them are in town. That's Rick, Miss Helen, Chrissy, which is Josie's mum, Josie and Clara. And Chrissy, Josie and Clara are going to meet the father. And Rick and Miss Helen are going to go to find this, quote, secret weapon, this chap who works for the college that they want Rick to go to. Josie meets with her father and he gives her a tech mirror 
And I'm thinking, is this some kind of symbol? It allows her to see herself as others see her. Will she begin to see how she changes? This could be a bit of a tortuous idea, but who knows? It does seem to be interesting that it does show her as others see her. The father wanted to join them for the portrait session with this guy called Paul Capaldi, the creep Capaldi. The father discusses how substitutions, he calls them, at work really helped him put a fresh perspective on his life. So he was made redundant. I wonder if this was because he was made redundant by an uplifted or an AI perhaps and whether that will come into the story later. Continuing the narrative, they pass Clara's store, but it's gone and it's replaced by a lighting store. And then Clara passes the Cootings machine. Josie says she'll help find her store tomorrow after the portrait at Capaldi today. They arrive at Capaldi's and the mother calls Clara, quote, honey. And I think that's interesting because she's actually treating Clara a little bit like Josie. They go into Henry Capaldi's studio and the mother asks to see, quote, the work in progress. And the father, Chris, seems to not like AFs or, in particular, Clara. He's very distrustful. Have a listen to this. Quote, When at last he turned to face me, his eyes had lost their smiling folds. He was smiling at his daughter, and then all sense of smile is gone. Mr Capaldi sets Clara on a questionnaire, and this seems a bit unprofessional. Isn't he supposed to be focusing on making a portrait? So she does this strange computer questionnaire in another room. The unfinished portrait is behind a purple door, and it affects both of the parents when they see it. And Clara sneaks in to take a peek. And I'm thinking, has she forgotten her main objective, which was to destroy the Kootingers machine? Why is she so concerned about this portrait? Anyway, Clara sees the portrait of Josie, And it's really quite a haunting description. Quote, I turned the corner and saw Josie there suspended in the air. She wasn't very high. Her feet were at the height of my shoulders. But because she was leaning forward, arms outstretched, fingers spread, she seemed to be frozen in the act of falling. Little beams illuminated her from various angles, forbidding her any refuge. Her face was very like that of the real Josie, but because there was, at the eyes, no kind of smile, the upward curve of her lips gave her an expression I'd never seen before. The face looked disappointed and afraid. Her clothes weren't real clothes, but made from thin tissue paper to approximate a t-shirt on her top half, loose-fitting shorts on the lower. The tissue was pale yellow and translucent, and under the sharp lighting made this Josie's arms and legs look all the more fragile. Her hair had been tied back in the manner the real Josie wore it on her ill days, and this was the one detail that failed to convince. The hair had been made from a substance I'd never seen on any AF, and I knew this Josie wouldn't be happy with it. The father says to Capaldi, I'm surprised you're not requesting a sample of her blood, and they both, her father and Josie, leave abruptly. The portrait does appear innocent enough, but perhaps Melania doesn't like artists, I'm thinking, (laughs) probably not. The mother asks Clara what she thinks of the portrait, and she says, quote, This is Clara. I'd suspected for some time that Mr Capaldi's portrait wasn't a picture or a sculpture, but an AF. I went in to confirm my speculation. Mr Capaldi has done an accurate job of catching Josie's outward appearance. Of course, it's an AF. That's what the questionnaire was for. To implant Josie's brain, maybe, or some such thing like that. So Clara's outer body is going to be replaced by the portrait of Josie. The mother wants a replica of Josie in case she dies. Capaldi is like some awful taxidermist. Continuing the narrative, Capaldi admits he made the Sal AF. So there's one of my questions answered. 
which was, you know, who was that girl in the cornfield? She was an AF. Capaldi sounds very much like a pushy salesman, quote, and this is Capaldi speaking. What we made with Sal was a doll, a bereavement doll, nothing more. We've come a long, long way since then. What you have to understand is this. The new Josie won't be an imitation. She really will be Josie, a continuation of Josie. And the mother says, you want me to believe that? Do you believe that? Capaldi says, I do believe it. With everything I'm worth, I believe it. I'm glad Clara went in there and looked. We need her on board now. We've needed that for a long time because it's Clara who will make the difference, make it very, very different this time round. You have to keep faith, Chrissy. That's the mother's name. You can't weaken now. But will I believe in it when the day comes? Will I really? Very good question. And then the penny drops. Clara says, quote, I understood about the survey. It was to test how well I've come to know Josie, how well I understood how she makes her decisions and why she has her feelings. I think the results will show I'm well able to train the Josie upstairs. Capaldi says, Clara, we're not asking you to train the new Josie. We're asking you to become her. That Josie you saw up there, as you noticed, is empty. If the day comes, I hope it doesn't, but if it does, we want you to inhabit that Josie up there with everything you've learned. Chrissy chose you carefully with that in mind. She believed you to be the one best equipped to learn Josie, not just superficially, but deeply, entirely. Learn her till there's no difference between the first Josie and the second. It appears that Capaldi went through a very similar bereavement and the mother and Capaldi questioned the nature of consciousness. And this is Capaldi speaking to Clara. Quote, you're being asked to continue her for Chrissy and for everyone who loves Josie. And the mother says, but is that going to be possible? Could she really continue Josie for me? And Capaldi says, Chrissy, you're like me. We're both of us sentimental. We can't help it. Our generations still carry the old feelings. A part of us refuses to let go. The part that wants to keep believing there's something unreachable inside each of us. Something that's unique and won't transfer. But there's nothing like that. We know that now. You know that. For people our age, it's a hard one to let go. We have to let it go, Chrissy. There's nothing there. Nothing inside Josie that's beyond the Claras of this world to continue. The second Josie won't be a copy. She'll be the exact same and you'll have every right to love her just as you love Josie now. It's not faith you need, only rationality. I had to do it. It was tough, but now it works for me just fine and it will work for you too. But then I've written in the margin, look, she won't be like Josie because she won't grow up for a start. She won't have boyfriends. She won't get married. And remember, she doesn't have a sense of smell. I know it's a small thing, but she won't be able to discuss food if they're out in a field full of flowers. She's not going to be the same person at all. It's a crazy pipe dream, and she's not even dead. Is it a little naive as well on the author's part to expect a mother to actually want this, or is Ishiguru enlightened? What do you think? I'd love your opinion. And I'm now thinking that if Clara destroys the Cootings machine and Josie does get better, Clara will, as a conspiracy theorist, perhaps that's not the right word, but she will correlate the two. Clara's certainly got massive gaps in her knowledge, which I'm sure Josie doesn't have. And I'm sure the activity is illegal and illicit. Listen to this. Quote, I looked at Mr. Cabaldi's building, the sun's pattern on its wall and its fire escapes, and I thought it curious the building could be so dirty on the outside. I'm sure the activity that Capaldi is undertaking is illegal or illicit, otherwise he would be advertising this service, surely. 
And I'm also thinking about the novel in, in terms of society. And at the moment, I'm thinking it's a very, very small society. There's only a few characters. The only very large gathering we've had was that party. It's almost like a stage set. It's just, there's no other people involved. There's no feeling of society. Is that just me? I'd love to know your thoughts. Continuing the narrative, the mother says that it is her making the request of Clara. Quote, this is the mother speaking, I'm asking you to make this work, not Capaldi, because if it happens, if it comes again, there's going to be no other way for me to survive. I came through it with Sal, but I can't do it again. So I'm asking you, Clara, do your best for me. They told me in the store you were remarkable. I've watched you enough to know that's maybe true. If you set your mind to it, then who knows, it might work and I'll be able to love you and I'll be able to love you. Whoa. And not only will she receive the mother's love, but she may also receive Rick's love too. If, of course, she's not rejected by Rick. And I don't think it will take very long for Rick to find out there had been a swap. Clara seems pretty convinced by the mother. Quote, Until just now, I believed it was my duty to save Josie, to make her well. But perhaps this is a better way. So now perhaps Clara has a strong motivation for the destruction of Josie since she believes she will get more love. This is a really pivotal moment in the novel where we're going to find out whether Clara decides to abandon the Cooting's machine destruction in the hope that Josie might die and therefore getting love or she's going to continue to really help Josie. Continuing on, the mother stops by, quote, grind our own beef store. And I'm thinking, surely in a futuristic novel, and I'm assuming it's futuristic, it would be something like grow your own beef rather than grind your own beef. And this then got me thinking about perhaps it's set today, except with the slight change that we've got uplifted and AFs. What do you think? I mean, there's still people driving around in cars. So if it wasn't set in the future, I would have thought there'd be lots of driverless cars. Anyway, continuing onward, Clara and the father end up alone having a drive together and all five of them will meet up later for some sushi. And Clara asks to go to the old store and crucially she has forgotten all about saving Josie and destroying the Cootings machine. And Paul, the father, uh, questions Clara in the car. Quote, let me ask you this. Do you believe in the human heart? I don't mean simply the organ, obviously. I'm speaking in the poetic sense. The human heart. Do you think there is such a thing? Something that makes each of us special and individual? And if we just suppose that there is, then don't you think in order to truly learn Josie, you'd have to learn not just her mannerisms, but what's deeply inside her? Wouldn't you have to learn her heart? And that could be difficult, no? Something beyond even your wonderful capabilities because an impersonation wouldn't do, however skillful. You'd have to learn her heart and learn it fully or you'll never become Josie in any sense that matters. And Clara responds with, the heart you speak of, it might indeed be the hardest part of Josie to learn. It might be like a house with many rooms. Even so, a devoted AF, given time, could walk through each of those rooms, studying them carefully in turn, until they became like her own home. And the father says, But then suppose you stepped into one of those rooms and discovered another room within it, and inside that room, another room still. Rooms within rooms within rooms. Isn't that how it might be, trying to learn Josie's heart? No matter how long you wandered through those rooms, wouldn't there always be others you'd not yet entered? And Clara considers this and says, 
Of course, a human heart is bound to be complex, but it must be limited. Even if Mr. Paul is talking in the poetic sense, there'll be an end to what there is to learn. Josie's heart may well resemble a strange house with rooms inside rooms, but if this were the best way to save Josie, then I'd do my utmost, and I believe there's a good chance I'd be able to succeed. So Clara responds by saying the human heart must be finite. Ultimately, if there is a difference between Clara and Josie, I don't think it's going to be because of heart or a different consciousness, but in those subtle differences, like the sense of smell that I mentioned earlier, like the not growing up. So if the mother rejects the copy, don't let the author trick you into thinking it's because Clara will have a, quote, finite heart, in case that happens. Continuing on, Clara's old store is definitely closed and Clara asks Paul to drive past the Cootings machine so she can destroy it. Quote, and this is Clara speaking, My old store wasn't the true reason I asked you to drive into this district. When we came this way earlier today, not far from the store, we passed a machine. It was being used by overhaul men and it was creating terrible pollution. This machine must be destroyed. That's the real reason I asked to be driven here. It must be somewhere nearby. It's easily identified because it has the name Cootings on its body. It has three funnels and each of them emits terrible pollution. Yes! Clara still wants to save Josie, even though she would gain so much love if Josie was destroyed. Now, Paul's not much of an engineer because he doesn't even know what the machine is from her description. Also, he's very unscientific. Just to go along with her plan, is he not going to question Clara further? especially the destruction of a machine, quote, and this is Clara speaking, I'm not able to explain, Mr. Paul has to trust me, if we can only find the Cootings machine and destroy it, I believe it will lead to Josie's full recovery, then it won't matter about Mr. Capaldi or about his portrait or how well I'm able to learn Josie. The father considered this. All right, he said eventually, let's at least give this a try. And this made me think, you know, when you love something, it's very easy to discard science. This is the dad going along with Clara's very unscientific thinking. Quote, hope, he said, damn thing never leaves you alone. He shook his head almost resentfully, but there was now a new strength about him. He's a scientist. He's no better than Clara, though. He's looking for hope anywhere. So, continuing on, Clara finds the Cootings machine. There's a bit of a plot hole here. Why is the father blind to it? Why doesn't he identify this machine? And then the father, this Chris, has a bit of a diatribe about consciousness. Quote, I think I hate Capaldi because deep down I suspect he may be right that what he claims is true, that science has now proved beyond doubt there's nothing so unique about my daughter, nothing there, our modern tools can't excavate, copy, transfer, that people have been living with one another all this time, centuries, loving and hating each other, and all on a mistaken premise, a kind of superstition we kept going while we didn't know better. That's how Capaldi sees it, and there's a part of me that fears he's right. Chrissy, on the other hand, isn't like me. She may not know it yet, but she'll never let herself be persuaded. If the moment ever comes, never mind how well you play your part, Clara, never mind how much she wishes it to work, Chrissy just won't be able to accept it. She's too old-fashioned. Even if she knows she's going against the science and the math, she still won't be able to do it. She just won't stretch that far. I'm different. I have... A kind of coldness inside me she lacks. Perhaps it's because I'm an expert engineer, as you put it. This is why I find it so hard to be civil around people like Capaldi. When they do what they do, say what they say, it feels like they're taking from me what I hold most precious in this life. But she won't be Josie, so you've nothing to fear. This anger 
and hate and emotions should be directed at your dying daughter. That's my comments in the margin. Anyway, Clara agrees with me and says the following. It seems then, from everything Mr Paul says, that it's even more important that what Mr Capaldi proposes is never put to the test. If we can make Josie healthy, then the portrait, my learning her, none of it will matter. So I ask you again, please advise me how I might destroy the Cootings machine. I have a feeling Mr Paul has an idea how we might do it. And here comes this sacrifice moment. It needs a high acrylamide content to destroy it. And I wonder if the only ready source will be inside Clara. But then if Clara gets destroyed, the Josie Mark II project is over. So there's a conundrum. Let's see if I'm right. Let's see if there's a sacrifice. And very next page, yes, there is this anti-cooting solution, which is this PEG9 solution that is inside Clara's head. And Paul says, quote, extracting a little should be okay. I can do it with this screwdriver. And Clara has to decide, and she does ultimately agree to the sacrifice. Quote, and Clara says, Will I lose my abilities? And Paul says, As I said, your overall performance shouldn't be greatly impaired, but this isn't my area. There may be some effects on your cognitive abilities, but since your essential energy source is solar, you shouldn't be affected to any significant degree. So the actual action of destroying the Kootings machine is not described by the author. And I've written in the margin here that we need to watch out for a change in Clara's mental faculties. Continuing the narrative, they all meet at the sushi cafe and Rick is going to meet the tutor here. And I'm thinking, with everyone else in tow? It's a bit unrealistic, but I guess the novelist has to shoehorn Clara in there because it's a first-person narration and... She's going to have to be a witness to this meeting. So there was a suggestion that Clara was going to be helping Rick with his studies, and I wonder why this idea has been abandoned. Let me know what you think. It is strange. And interestingly, the father calls Josie, quote, animal all the time, but it is very clever. He doesn't actually need any dialogue tags. Example, and this is on page 231, if you're following alongside, at the top of the page, he just says, quote, hey, animal, did your mother happen to say something to upset you? This isn't like you sitting there so quiet. We just know instantly that that is the father speaking. Continuing on, Miss Helen accuses Paul of being a fascist. Quote, this is Miss Helen speaking. I do apologise, Paul, for suggesting you and your friends were fascists. I shouldn't have done so. It's just that you did say you were all white people and all from the ranks of the former professional elites. You did say that and that you were having to arm yourselves quite extensively against other types, which does all sound a little on the fascistic side. Clara's vision has become affected, but her hearing seems to be OK, unless she's about to turn into a very unreliable narrator. Continuing on, Paul offers Rick and Miss Helen an opening in his commune if Rick fails to get into Atlas Brookings. And Miss Helen admits she should have got Rick, quote, lifted. The father has mentioned that the portrait is more a, quote, kind of sculpture. And then Vance appears, the guy who will supposedly help Rick. And he talks of the fact that there's a protest against Oxford Building that houses the post-employed. And the father says to Clara... What did we do back there when he's talking about destroying the Cootings machine? This is the father speaking. Quote, So I'm wondering if you tell me now exactly what did we do back there and what can we hope will happen as a result? Well, that's exactly what I'm thinking as well. None of it was described. It feels like a bit of a mishmash here. This portrait and the Cootings machine and Rick's tutor all in kind of one scene. Personally, I think it could have been expanded a little bit more. I don't know what you think. 
Continuing the narrative, the mother and Josie go off to chat on their own, leaving Clara with Vance, Rick and Rick's mum. And Rick's mum used to have a relationship with Vance, as we heard earlier. And Vance refers to, quote, genetic editing. So maybe that is the cause of these uplifteds, this thing called genetic editing, which I don't know a huge amount about. Vance talks about his position at the college, quote, I currently chair the college's founders committee. That's to say the body that controls the scholarships. The selection procedure at Atlas Brookings is not subject to any favouritism, he says. As Vance leafs through Rick's designs for drones, Clara gets a flashback. Quote, At that moment, I felt once more, fleetingly but vividly, the father's hand holding my head at the required angle and heard the trickling noise as the fluid entered the plastic bottle he was holding up close to my face with his other hand. Flashback from destroying the Cootings machine. And then Clara notices a lonely woman in the diner who she refers to later. It's literally one line but she does think about it a lot later on when she's in McBain's barn. Vance asks Rip bluntly, quote, you are asking for favouritism. And the mother says to Vance, yes, we are. And Vance says to the mother, quote, but you ignored me for 27 years. So this meeting with Vance goes pretty badly. The mother is desperate for him to help Rick. And there's a bit of a comical exit of Vance, quote, and this is the mother saying, you don't know what you're saying, Rick. Vance, don't go just yet. Let's not be part like this. You used to love donuts. Won't you have one now? What is Ishiguri thinking at this point? You used to love donuts. This is not fast, but it reads like fast. I just think that was a bit over the top, that ending. Very small niggle. I think now that finally Clara may be asked to help Rick. There was talk of him helping earlier. Maybe it's going to happen now. Continuing on, they go back to the hotel and Clara waits for the sun as Josie sleeps. And on the drive home, Clara sees an even bigger Cootings machine pumping out pollution. Uh-oh. Quote, this is Clara. I now knew why the sun hadn't acted and for a moment I might have let my posture slump and my head hang down. She's not going to drain her brain again, is she? getting an even bigger Cootings machine. That's what I'm thinking might be happening. Anyway, we go on to part five. Eleven days later, and Josie's illness makes her worse. Clara is helping Rick with his studies, finally, except, I assume, astrophysics, which I don't think she's very good at. And Rick and Clara talk. Everyone's given up hope for Josie except for Clara, and I predict that she and Rick will destroy the second Cootings machine together, debilitating Clara, but Josie will get better and Clara will believe in a correlation between the two events. Very unscientific. But that's what I think is going to happen. Clara says to Rick, look, take me to the barn again. Quote, of course I'll help. I don't see how this helps Josie, but if you say it will, then of course I'll help. And that's Rick. And I'm thinking when you love something so intensely, you'll do anything to try to help. Josie asks Rick to declare his love for Josie to use as a bargaining chip with the son, which he does. Clara goes to the barn and she says a prayer to the son for him to save Josie. She remembers the lonely woman in Vance's diner, who I mentioned earlier, and she is reminded of Rosa. And I'm thinking perhaps Rosa has been used as a substitute AF for someone else as well. Clara says to the son that she will gladly give more of her, quote, precious fluid if it will help Josie. 
Interestingly, Clara is unable to recognise that similar objects are different. For example, sheep in a picture, quote, she saw on the way to Morgan Falls. And then Clara sees the sun's final rays reflected seven different ways in seven sheets of glass propped up in the barn. Quote, I stared at the glass sheets. The sun's reflection, though still in intense orange, was no longer blinding as I studied more carefully the sun's face framed within the outermost rectangle. I began to appreciate that I wasn't looking at a single picture, as in fact there existed a different version of the sun's face on each of the glass surfaces, and what I might at first have taken for a unified image was in fact seven separate ones superimposed one over the other as my gaze penetrated from the first sheet through to the last. Although his face on the outermost glass was forbidding and aloof, and the one immediately behind it was, if anything, even more unfriendly, the two beyond that were softer and kinder. There were three further sheets, and though it was hard to see much of them on account of their being further back, I couldn't help estimating that these faces would have humorous and kind expressions. In any case, whatever the nature of the images on each glass sheet, as I looked at them collectively, the effect was of a single face, but with a variety of outlines and emotions. I continued to stare intently, and then all the sun's faces began to fade together. And I wonder if this is a comment on what we call the Holy Trinity in religion. Rick is constantly by Josie's side, and Josie continues to deteriorate. And the mother says some unkind things to Rick. Quote, I was wondering if right now you might be feeling like you're the winner, like maybe you've won. You played for low stakes and what you've won is small and mean. You may feel pretty smug just now, but I'm here to tell you, you've got no reason to be feeling that way. No reason at all. This seems a bit out of character. I didn't realise the mother was that mean. And Rick responds with, quote, No matter what happens now, never mind how it plays out. She loves you and will always love you. She's very grateful you're her mother and she never even once wished for any other. On this question of being lifted, she wants you to know she wouldn't wish it any other way. If she had the power to do it again, and this time it was up to her, she says she'd do exactly what you did and you'll always be the best mother she could have. Isn't Rick great? What a nice guy. Clara interrupts this moment to say that the sun is coming out and the sun floods into Josie's room and, coincidentally, Josie does feel better. And then we go on to part six. And the years go by and Josie gets stronger and turns into an adult. Rick comes over and Rick says to Clara... You remember that day we were all so exhausted and in despair, then everything turned around? I always wanted to ask you, except you seemed so closed up about it. I always wanted to ask if what happened that morning, all that strange weather, everything else, if it had to do with the other stuff, you know, me carrying you over the fields, you making some secret deal. At the time, I thought it was all, well, AF superstition, something just to bring us good luck. But these days, I keep wondering if there was more to it. And Clara says... Unfortunately, I don't dare speak about this matter. Even today, it was such a special favour. And if I speak about it to anyone, even just to Rick, my fear is that the help Josie received will be taken back. And Rick says, Then stop there. Don't say anything. I don't want to open up even a tiny chance of her getting ill again. But the doctors always say, once you get through the stage she did, you're safe. Clara says to Rick, quote, It worries me that you have separate plans. Well, they're going to different colleges. Rick says, quote, We're no longer kids. We have to wish each other the best and go our different ways. It couldn't have worked out, me going to college, trying to compete with all those lifted kids. I've got my own plans now, and that's how it should be. Poor Rick. 
And the reason is Clara is worried that the son may take retribution if he was lying when he said that he loved Josie. And Rick says, quote, our love was real then, but we need to move on. I feel this is the end of the novel now. It's slowly fading out, as the author says, just like the sun's rays. Josie has some friends over to stay and Clara sleeps in the utility room, so she's moved out of her bedroom. Josie helps tidy the room so that Clara can see the McBain's barn. It's very sweet of her. And then Clara hears the mother chatting with creepy Capaldi downstairs. Dun-dun-dun... I'm wondering why Clara wasn't just being switched off like a vacuum cleaner, especially since the mother doesn't much seem to like her anymore and Josie's kind of ignoring her a lot. Perhaps Capaldi's going to make a secret Josie Mark II so that when Josie does finally go to college, the mother won't be lonely. But I'm wrong in that thought. It was fleeting. Capaldi says to Clara, quote, the fact is, there's growing and widespread concern about AFs right now. People saying how you've become too clever. They're afraid because they can't follow what's going on inside anymore. They can see what you do. They accept that your decisions, your recommendations are sound and dependable, almost always correct. But they don't like not knowing how you arrive at them. That's where it comes from, this backlash, this prejudice. So we have to fight back. We have to say to them, OK, you're worried because you don't understand how AFs think fine then let's go take a look under the hood let's reverse engineer what you don't like are sealed black boxes okay let's open them once we see inside not only do things get a lot less scary we'll learn learn amazing new things so this is where you come in clara those of us on your side we're looking for help for volunteers we've already succeeded in opening a number of black boxes but we really need to open up a whole lot more and the mother says to capaldi Quote, no, you cannot have her. We will let her have her slow fade. Josie tells Clara that she's scared of going to college, but she won't let her fear get in the way of that. And Josie sets herself some secret targets. Quote, we're all supposed to set these official targets, two targets in each of five categories. I had to fill in a form about it, but I cheated because I figured out my own secret targets. Nothing to do with the ones on the form. Boy, would they not like my real list? And no way is mum ever hearing about it either. She laughed cheerfully. Even you, Clara, I'm not sharing my secret targets with you. But if you're still here when I get back at Christmas, I'll tell you how many I've got through. So there we see that she might not be around at Christmas. There are a few allusions, actually, to Clara departing. So Josie and Clara hug as she leaves with her mother to go to college. And poor Clara in the next scene, has been used and dumped in the, quote, yard. This is some kind of scrapyard. She can't move, but she can see birds. There's a bit of a sad end for Clara, but she does see the manager from the old store appear in the yard. So maybe there's been a, some kind of backlash against AFs, and many are now in these yards. We'll never really find out. Clara explains to the manager that she's happy her role as Josie's Mark II didn't happen. Quote, I don't think it would have worked out so well, not because I wouldn't have achieved accuracy, but however hard I tried, I believe now there would have remained something beyond my reach. The mother, Rick, Melania housekeeper, the father, I'd never have reached what they felt for Josie in their hearts. I'm now sure of this. 
Mr Capaldi believed there was nothing special inside Josie that couldn't be continued. He told the mother he'd searched and searched and found nothing like that, but I believe now he was searching in the wrong place. There was something very special, but it wasn't inside Josie. It was inside those who loved her. That's why I think now Mr Capaldi was wrong and I wouldn't have succeeded. And there I think we have the answer to what makes someone unique and special. There's something very special, but not inside Josie, inside those who loved her. That's what makes her special. The manager says she had a soft spot for the B2s over the B3s. And they say goodbye and she walks away with a slight limp. And then we have the end of the novel. So it's been very, very enjoyable to read. And it hasn't been a very depressing ending. Although I feel a bit sorry for Clara, but she does seem at peace. There are obviously very many questions that are kind of unanswered. Let's just go through some of them. So will Clara find a cure for Josie? Well, she believes she's found a cure for Josie, but I think it's just coincidence. Will Josie get better? Yes, she did get better. Rich didn't get into Atlas Brookings, like I hoped. Will Clara's naive belief that the sun can be harnessed lead to anyone's destruction? Luckily not. No, it didn't lead to destruction. Will we ever find out what that Cootings machine is? No, we didn't. And we even had an engineer with us who wasn't able to identify it. So some ideas from the second half. There's a lot of unanswered questions. The Cootings machine, what is uplifted, where is Sal? There's a lot of things we don't really get to the bottom of. Things that aren't completely tied up and packaged. It reminds me of a great black and white photo. You have to imagine what's not there. The colour, what's just outside the frame, makes your brain do some work. And it makes the overall vision so much stronger. And that's what I think the author is trying to do here with all those sort of unanswered questions and things like not seeing the Cootings machine actually being destroyed. It leaves lots to the imagination. I really enjoyed the book. The questions of what it is to be human and conscious and the ultimate answer. It's what others see of us and feel of us that makes us unique. There's a really interesting point by Capaldi about prejudice, how you can hate something if you don't understand them. That's a really interesting idea that comes out in that last paragraph. So continuing ideas, we have that conspiracy theory idea. They arise in Clara because of her single point of view. She has very little empirical knowledge. She just has the knowledge needed to be a good AF. Here's a great example. It's from the first half, page 116. Quote, I thought too about the time the son had given his special nourishment to beggar man and his dog and considered the important differences between his circumstances and Josie's. For one thing, many passers-by had known beggar man and when he'd become weak, he'd done so in a busy street visible to taxi drivers and runners. Any of these people might have drawn the son's attention to his condition and that of his dog. Even more significantly, I remembered what had been happening not long before the son had given his special nourishment to Beggerman. The Cootings machine had been making its awful pollution, obliging even the son to retreat for a time, and had been during the fresh new era after the dreadful machine had gone away that the son, relieved and full of happiness, had given his special help. And so this prejudice against AFs about how they have this unique new ability to understand the world is actually just an interpretation of the humans. She didn't know how to cure Clara, but you can see why humans may think, well, that AF has some special knowledge. So I've already mentioned that Ishiguro leaves a lot of things to the reader's imagination, like a great black and white photo. 
We've got a few examples. So the destruction of the Cootings machine. And also there's that telephone message. I don't know whether you remember this. The mother is talking to Vance about how he upset her. Quote, it was very hurtful. It was a despicable message and I haven't forgotten it. I, I hear it in my mind even now. It invades me when I least expect it. I have a quiet moment to myself. Then there I am in my mind picking up the phone and leaving you that message all over again. Except this time I change it. I edit it so that it's not quite so awful because I never actually heard it myself. Only heard myself saying it. I feel sometimes it's not too late to amend it. I can't help it. It's a trick my mind plays, and then I feel so dreadful all over again. Believe me, Vance, I've punished myself about that message so much, and you must appreciate in those days I didn't know how you technically erase a message once you'd left one. But we never know what the message is. We have more unfailing faith in technology. The mother asking whether Clara may know of a cure. And then in part two, we've got the father trusting Clara to destroy the Cootings machine. Remember, he says, all right, let's at least give this a try. And then we also have some interesting ideas and comments on a religion. It's possible that the author is saying that religion is a natural outcome of an advanced consciousness it is inevitable, just like Clara, believing that the sun is this all-powerful being. And then that leads on to this idea of self-centeredness. Clara only understands the world via her own direct experience. For example, the red shells. She believes they're the ones that are from the store. She just can't believe in reproductions of the same thing. This is how conspiracy theories start, and Clara is the perfect example of a conspiracy theorist. She thinks the sun lives in Mr. McBain's barn, because she does not have an overarching understanding of the world based on shared knowledge. There was also a very interesting idea when it came to genetic editing or genetic modification. Poor Josie became ill because her mother wanted her to have cognitive advantages, whereas Rick did not have the genetic manipulation, but he is now in the position where he's struggling to get into Atlas Brookings. The answer as to whether one way is the correct way or the incorrect way is not resolved, but the question raised is so interesting. So final words, absolutely loved the book. It was really, really fun to read. It makes you think of so many interesting issues around consciousness and what it is to love someone. I'd love to know your thoughts and comments. Okay, very, very quickly about the author, Sir Kazuo Ishiguro. He's a British novelist. He was born in Nagasaki, Japan. He moved to Britain when he was five. And he has received four Man Booker Prize nominations and won an award in 1989 for his novel, The Remains of the Day. Vincent wrote to me talking about the offing from last month's book shook. If you've not read The Offing and you don't want any spoilers, please skip forward to 51 minutes 40. He says, quote, Dear Roger, I have by now finished The Offing and had a listen to your podcast as well, so I thought I would share some thoughts as suggested. Although I was not expecting or hoping that Romy would turn out to be alive like you mentioned on the podcast, the second half of the novel did at times leave me wanting more. The intriguing questions raised in the first half are answered in a satisfying manner, but the resolution of the story felt somewhat underwhelming and easy. Of course, Dolce comes to terms with her grief. Of course, Robert rejects his destiny in the mining town, etc., etc. The more I reflected on the novel, the more questions I had about the backstories of Dulcie and Romy, which could have added a lot of depth to the narrative. 
Darcy's story in particular seems to suggest the fascinating tale of a woman who spent part of her life in the upper echelons of society, but used her wealth to carve out a life for herself away from the constraints and conventions of that society. Of course, the fact that this story is told entirely from Robert's perspective leaves little room to explore those questions, which I guess is part of the problem. To end with some positive remarks, I did enjoy the novel style once I got used to it. I thought its discussion of poetry were interesting as well as the poems included, and its depiction of life immediately after the Second World War was fascinating. In addition, I really enjoyed your podcast, not in the least because it gave me an opportunity to reflect on the novel. I'll be sure to keep an eye out to see what books you'll be discussing on Bookshook in the future. Best wishes, Vincent. Vincent, thank you very much for your message. I do agree with Vincent. I think I would have loved to have known a little bit more about Romy's backstory. It sounds so intriguing. I'd like to talk a little bit now about August's book, which is called Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart, and it was published in 2020. And if you're reading alongside, I'm going to be reading up to the end of chapter 17, which is roughly halfway. Now, I don't know anything about this book. I'm going to read the first page. Initial impressions. Never read it before. Don't know anything about the book. All I do know is that it won the 2020 Booker Prize. So, chapter one. The day was flat. That morning, his mind had abandoned him and left his body wandering down below. The empty body went listlessly through its routine, pale and vacant-eyed under the fluorescent strip lights, as his soul floated above the aisles and thought only of tomorrow. Tomorrow was something to look forward to. Shuggy was methodical in setting up for his shift. All the pots of oily dips and spreads were decanted into clean trays. The edges were wiped free of any splashes that would go brown quickly and ruin the illusion of freshness. The sliced hams were artfully arranged with fake parsley sprigs, and the olives were turned so that the viscous juice slid like mucus over their green skins. Anne McGee had the brass neck to cool in sick again that morning, leaving him with a thankless task of running his deli counter and her rotisserie stand all alone. No day ever started well with six dozen raw chickens, and today of all days it was stealing the sweetness out of his daydreams. He pushed industrial skewers through each cold, dead bird and lined them up neatly in a row. They sat there with their stubby wings crossed over their fat little chests like so many headless babies. There was a time he would have taken pride in this orderliness. In reality, pushing the metal through the bumpy pink flesh was the easy part. The difficult part was resisting the urge to do the same to the customers. They would pour over the hot glass and study each of the carcasses in detail. They would choose only the best bird, ignorant to the fact that battery farming meant they were all identical. Shuggy would stand there, his back teeth pinching the inside of his cheek, and indulge their indecisiveness with a forced smile. Then the pantomime would really begin. Geese three breasts, five thighs, and just one wing the day son. I'm sorry, that is not a great Scottish accent. Apologies. I'll need to translate. Give us three breasts, five thighs, and just one wing, son. The day. I'm not sure exactly what that means. In Glaswegian. I'm looking forward to reading that. I love that description of the birds. Their stubby wings crossed over their fat little chest like so many headless babies. Headless babies. That's a bit of a scary simile. I wonder if this Shuggy has done something in his past to come up with such a simile. We will find out, I guess. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. The email is bookshook at yahoo.com or you can leave a comment on the Bookshook YouTube channel. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. Talking of which, 
Rubbish. September's book will be Pyrenees by Susanna Clark. So get that one ordered and at the ready. That's it from me. I look forward to discussing the first part of Shuggy Bane at the next episode of Bookshook. That'll be on the second Friday of August, the 13th. See you then. Mm-hmm.